Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. This is episode 27. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. The song you are listening to is a rock version of the Star-Spangled Banner. If you know the name of the band which created this powerful cover, without asking a song recognition app, please email me at woolenallen at gmail.com and put the name of the band in the subject of the email. The first 10 people to email me with the correct answer will each receive a free Thomas Sowell quote post-it notepad. And remember, this is the honor system. You can't look it up, you just have to know it. And for those of you who don't know the group, I'll put a link in the show notes to a video of them performing the song live in a packed stadium. It was quite the moment. I chose this song because for me it symbolizes the subject of today's episode, which is freedom. In my opinion, the most powerful stanza in the song is this. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. This past November 4th and 5th, I was lucky to attend in person the Academic Freedom Conference held at Stanford University. For me, this conference was proof through the night that our flag was still there. In today's episode, I would like to share with you my experience of the conference and talk about academic freedom, as well as freedom in general. Of course, I will connect this subject to the writings of Thomas Sowell, because, as always, he provides us with much insight and wisdom on the subject. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that individual freedom is an underlying theme in most of Sowell's works. This was my first ever visit to Stanford University, and besides it being a vast and beautiful campus, it is also the physical home of the Hoover Institution, which just happens to be the academic home of Thomas Sowell himself. Just a few hundred yards from where the conference took place was the majestic Hoover Tower, 
which I could see out the window of the conference. On a break, I wandered over to Hoover to see if I could perhaps catch Sowell for a quick chat. But alas, Hoover was closed that day. It was a Saturday, so I went to the bookstore instead to pick up some Stanford t-shirts for my wife and kids, and also to see how many Sowell books were on hand. I'm sad to report that they only had one single copy of one book on hand, Discrimination and Disparities. My local Barnes & Noble has more than that. So I feel bad for the students at Stanford. I really do. If I ran the zoo, as Dr. Seuss used to say, I would make sure to dedicate an entire section to Sowell's books. But if I ran the zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, I'd make a few changes. That's just what I'd do. Sowell started his career in academia as a university professor. He taught economics at Howard, Rutgers, Cornell, Amherst, Brandeis, and UCLA. In 1977, he gave up in-person teaching to become a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, which is a think tank for conservative intellectuals. He still works there at the ripe young age of 92, and his upcoming book called Social Justice Fallacies will be released next summer. But why did Sowell leave teaching? Wikipedia says this. Sowell has written that he gradually lost faith in the academic system, citing low academic standards and counterproductive university bureaucracy. And he resolved to leave teaching after his time at the University of California, Los Angeles. In a personal odyssey, he recounts, I had come to Amherst basically to find reasons to continue teaching. What I found instead were more reasons to abandon an academic career. Sowell tells one story in his memoir, A Personal Odyssey, which gives us a clue to why he got fed up with academia. In 1972, Stanford invited Sowell to meet with professors in its economics department because they were thinking of offering him a position there. Sowell tells us this. I had a good visit with the Stanford Economics Department, but a bad impression of Stanford from a luncheon at the faculty club. During the meal, a group of radical students showed up with a bullhorn and proceeded to denounce the faculty for various sins of commission and omission. When some security guards stepped in, the students protested that they had peacefully entered the faculty club and were being violently resisted by the security guards. In fact, nothing violent happened to the students. Instead, there was one of those reasonable compromises so characteristic of academia in the 1960s. Having begun by blasting away on a bullhorn at a tremendous volume, the students negotiated an agreement with the security guards to turn the volume down, some, for the remainder of their harangue. Among the faculty themselves, there was not one word of protest. When I expressed some surprise at how supinely they were taking it all, I was told that this was not nearly as bad as it had been on another occasion when the students actually came to the tables and took the silverware away. I asked, how many of them were there, and how many of you? This question seemed to elicit more reaction than the students' disruption had. I was told, well, I just never thought of it that way. That told me all I needed to know about Stanford. 
The economics department made me an attractive offer of a two-year visiting professorship, teaching half-time while getting paid full-time, with broad hints that an offer of a tenured position was likely to follow. However, when I phoned around to various people on campus, nothing that they said erased the sour impression I had from that luncheon scene in the faculty club. I declined the offer. I can tell from this story that Sowell was not one who had the patience for insubordination coming from students, and he clearly felt that at Stanford at the time, the inmates were running the asylum. When Sowell asked a faculty member, how many of them were there and how many of you, he was clearly suggesting that the professors should have stood their ground and physically ejected the protesters from the faculty lounge. Sowell was never one to back down from a fight, and he tells many stories in his memoir of actual fistfights he got into during his two years in the Marines. So on some level, it seems that Sowell left academia because academia wasn't giving him the freedom he wanted to teach the way he wanted to teach and to maintain the rigorous standards he wanted to maintain. By moving to Hoover, Was Sowell serving as the proverbial canary in the coal mine that academic freedom was on the decline? Now I'd like to switch gears and share with you my experience of the Academic Freedom Conference at Stanford in November. I'll be playing some clips from the conference and my thoughts about what was being discussed. All of the presentations from the conference are now available publicly on YouTube, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the YouTube page for the event. In total, there are 14 hours of lectures and Q&A sessions for you to absorb there, and I highly encourage you to do so. My goal with this episode is to play some of the highlights of the event and to thereby give you both the intellectual and emotional experience of having attended the conference with me. The event was co-hosted by John Cochrane, who you will remember from episode five, where John and I discussed why Sowell should win a Nobel Prize. John is also a senior fellow at Hoover in economics. John said this to open the conference. We gather as a group that believes academic freedom is important and believes that it is under threat. But we don't fully understand the problem or what to do about it. So we are here to share experiences in our different universities, our different fields, a diversity of viewpoints, to understand, to define the problem, and together to find practical solutions. We're not really here to have a philosophical discussion on whether academic freedom is important and whether it's threatened. We here start from the premise that the core mission of the university and the scholarly community is to uncover new knowledge, to debate and refine that knowledge, to pass on that knowledge, the next generation, and more importantly, to pass on the habits of critical inquiry, scholarly debate that produce true knowledge. We here start from the premise that we're losing academic freedom and that that threatens the core scholarly mission. John says that the core mission of the university is to uncover new knowledge, debate and refine that knowledge, and to pass on that knowledge to the next generation. And more importantly, to pass on the habits of critical inquiry and scholarly debate that produce true knowledge. You'll notice that John's view of the core mission of academia did not include anything about fostering social justice or other social or political causes. 
The first keynote speaker, Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist from New York University's business school, my alma mater, had this to say about the core purpose, or telos, of the university. So the word telos, as many of you know, a, a word common in Aristotelian psychology, refers to the end or purpose or goal for which a thing is designed, for which a profession aims at. So the telos of a knife is to cut, the telos of a physician is to heal, and the telos of university, uh, well, we've always thought about ourselves as being the academy, descended from Plato's academy. This is Raphael's The Academy at Athens, Plato and Aristotle in the center. And the telos is right there on the crest of many of our top schools. Harvard is Veritas, Yale is Lux at Veritas. And I found that Stanford actually considered uh, this motto, it was going to be truth and service. So truth, the pursuit of truth, and as John Cochran said, and the skills necessary to find it for yourself. Um, this is how our universities were designed. And much of what we do only makes sense in the light of this mission, in the light of this telos. And so what I want to suggest is that American universities, uh, drawing from British universities, created this extraordinary virtuous triangle. It's a triangle. It's an institution set up to maximize a mindset, to put young people into discover mode. And then everything is structured so that together as students and as researchers, we find truth and we pass on those skills. It's this virtual, this virtuous triangle that created the, the miracle of the American Research University and the American Liberal Arts College in the 20th century. And this is why these universities, along with a couple of British universities, um, dominate any list you can find of the top universities in the world. These are the greatest truth-creating engines in human history. And they're based in the places that we work, the universities. But what happened in 2014, when we got this flood of anxious, depressed young people demanding change, demanding that we not just have the free flow of ideas as we'd had for a long time. Um, we got students demanding trigger warnings for books, demanding that speakers be deplatformed or canceled, um, and demanding safe spaces if they couldn't get a speaker disinvited. Um, all of this combined to create a new moral culture of safetyism, keep me safe rather than of exploration or discover or let me grow. And Greg and I wrote about all of this in our 2018 book. Uh, all of our universities pretty much um, are now dominated by these terms here on the left. And this is a culture that is incompatible with the search for truth. So what I'd like to suggest is our mystery is how did we go from this virtuous triangle to, well, when you change the mindset, now it doesn't quite work. And then you get students demanding a change in the telos. If the telos is now social justice, then the institution doesn't work right. So Dr. Haidt is making the case that a new generation of students raised on social media entered the university and demanded a shift in the university's telos from truth-seeking to social justice activism. The problem, according to Dr. Haidt, is that universities are poorly equipped for this new mission, and by attempting it, they weaken their truth-seeking engines. He says this. You have a university designed for the pursuit of truth with all of its departments, with peer review, with all kinds of, of, of seminars. Uh, you have a, a hundreds of years of design of an institution for truth. And you know what? Well, let's just try remaking it as a social justice engine. Let's make that the highest purpose, social justice. And you can kind of do that, but it's actually not a very good social justice engine, and it's no longer able to find truth. This concept of telos really resonates with me. And I started to wonder, what is the telos of these United States of America? What does America really stand for? What is our brand? In my mind, America's telos is personal freedom. The freedom of the individual, both from the tyranny of his government and from the tyranny of the majority. It's the freedom of each of us 
from the encroachments of our fellow man. The classic, don't tread on me. As Ayn Rand wrote in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, quote, The smallest minority on earth is the individual. Those who deny individual rights cannot claim to be defenders of minorities, end quote. I have always assumed that this view about America's telos was shared by all Americans, and even by most everyone around the world, and that this was the reason so many people abroad want to come to America, in order to enjoy the personal freedom possible here. But just as the university is experiencing a shift in its telos, are we currently experiencing a shift in America's telos as well? Is there pressure in society to change the telos of America from one of personal freedom to one of social justice? I really wonder. And I wonder if the shift towards social justice can come without sacrificing the very freedom we cherish. You know, there's an old marketing book I read years ago, which made a big impression in my thinking. The book is called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Jack Trout and Al Reese, two advertising guys from the Mad Men era. The main thesis of the book is that a brand can only stand for one thing, not two things and not three, just one. Take Heinz, for example. When someone says Heinz, you immediately think of ketchup. Heinz stands for ketchup, not mustard, ketchup. But did you know that years ago, Heinz did not even make ketchup? Years ago, when someone said Heinz, everyone thought of pickles. Heinz used to dominate the pickle market. Then Heinz decided to expand its operations into the ketchup market. And what happened? I'll let Trouse and Reese tell the story. When you look into the prospect's mind, you can see what went wrong. It's the teeter-totter principle. One name can't stand for two distinctly different products. When one goes up, the other goes down. What's a Heinz? It used to mean pickles. Heinz owned the pickle position and got the largest share. Then the company made Heinz mean ketchup. Very successfully, too. Heinz is now the number one brand of ketchup. But what happened to the other side of the teeter-totter? Why, of course, Heinz lost its pickle leadership to Vlasic. They call it the teeter-totter, or seesaw, principle. When one side goes up, the other side has to go down. I think it's what Jonathan Haidt was saying when he said that when the university tries to line-extend its brand from truth-seeking to social justice, the truth side of the teeter-totter has to decline. And if America decides to shift its brand from individual freedom to social justice, the freedom side of the brand will find itself in decline. When truth-seeking in academia is subordinated to social justice activism, many subjects become taboo in direct proportion to their perceived interference with social justice goals. One of the next speakers, Luana Maroja, professor of biology at Williams University, had this to say about the tabooization of earnest inquiry into cultural differences. Another hot topic is that any explanation for disparities between African Americans or Latinos and whites 
that does not involve systemic bias is taboo, even if the explanation is not a hereditary one. Take cultural differences. I come from the third world and moved to the US when I was 23. I thus am very aware of the massive differences in culture and how that affects behavior. As a child, I was encouraged by relatives and societies to cheat in school and whenever personal gain was possible without causing much harm to others. <laughs> Here, this is horrifying and I adjusted. But think about the deep consequences of this difference. We can't bring it up. I am immediately reprehended whenever I bring culture or mention it. Eric Kaufman, a professor of politics at the University of London, asked a question from the audience on the subject of taboos, which I found to be very interesting. You know when someone asks a question which is so good that the answer is unnecessary? This was one of those. Kaufman said this. So yeah, just over in the Hoover Institution, Shelby Steele, uh, who wrote a book called White Guilt, uh, which is interesting because it's about the emergence of the racism taboo in the mid-1960s in the U.S., and he argued that essentially moral authority shifted from uh, you know, people of color having to de defer to white people to then white people and American institutions ha having to defer to people of color because they'd lost their moral authority. So I'm just wondering to what extent you think those events in the mid-60s which led to the emergence of this anti-racism taboo from which subsequent taboos around sexuality and gender derived in a way, how important do you think that has been? And do we need to revisit that taboo that emerged, even though we may support to some degree what the spirit of, the, of, of that taboo? I mean, is there not an overreach that's resulted from that taboo? And do we need to question uh, these taboos that emerged um, in the mid-60s in the U.S., later in the U.K.? Thanks. The next speaker touches on the demonization and ostracization experienced by professors who dare to contradict the various social justice shibboleths of the day. Jerry Coyne, who taught biology, ecology, and evolution at the University of Chicago for 29 years, had this to say. What I'm, I'm no longer teaching, I'm emeritus. I'm not worried about this. What I'm worried about is being demonized, being ostracized, simply for saying that there's something like biological meaningfulness in ethnic groups is enough to get you called an uh, a racist, which I have been, if you say that the sexes are bimodal, or, bi or even just binary, um, you get called a transphobe. And to any good liberal, and I'm a good liberal, I'm, I'm not like John said on the extreme left, but I'm, I'm between the left and the center, but even to a good liberal, the, the moniker racist or transphobe is horrifying, and it makes you just shut up. So this kind of teach, um, demonization occurs fairly regularly. The next keynote speaker, Lee Jessam, a social psychologist from Rutgers University, explores the radicalization of the academy and lays out some astonishing statistics about the predicament we find ourselves in. 40% of faculty identify as radicals, activists, Marxists, or socialists. Not as kind of on the, right? Not sort of like generally on the left, you know? Right? Radicals, at, yeah, and this includes people who chose more than one. So, and with graduate students, it's even higher. And the graduate student, I think, is important because graduate students are the future faculty of academia. So these numbers, are, so not only is the, the, the skew extreme, they are actually extremists. Now, it's not a majority, right? 40% is not 70%. 
So, but, but you know, if you, given that these are often activists and several people have alluded to this in other talks, that their presence probably exceeds their representation, but their representation is also massive. According to Jussum, 40% of university faculty nationwide view themselves as radicals, activists, Marxists, or socialists, and that this number is even higher among graduate students who are the university professors of the next generation. Jessam explains how diversity, equity, and inclusion, abbreviated DEI, is used as a filtering mechanism to push academia ever more to the left. He says this. So when you have DEI statements required um, as the entrance fee of admission to the academy, Basically, what, well, first place, it is worth pointing out, I think, that, that DEI in general is affirmative action on steroids. I mean, it is like trying to mobilize uh, you know, the, the universities in the, uh, uh, towards the goal of what is plausibly viewed as affirmative action. And so I don't have the data. Well, actually, I do have the data way in backup size, but somebody else said this. They're absolutely right. About 60% up to about 80, 85% of every racial ethnic group surveyed in national surveys by groups like Pew um, uh, uh, oppose affirmative action, which is why, you know, California, a majority minority state, one of the most left states in the country, has repeatedly rejected affirmative action. Americans have a strong consensus against affirmative action. Okay, so if DAI statements are required to be admitted either for a job or for, to present research at a conference, it is a form of either not state, not legally compelled speech, but professionally com compelled speech for anyone who opposes those initiatives. Because, you know, you, it's completely reasonable. A young scholar comes in and says, well, you know, to present at this conference or I need a job, I, you know, I'm going to make my peace with doing this. I don't really agree with it, but I'm going to play the game and I'm going to say how great my contributions to DEI are because I need a job or because I need to attend national conferences to have the visibility to get promoted and get tenure and all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, it's a form of socially or professionally compelled speech. But then there are the refuseniks. No, no, no. You know, I am not. I refuse to, to bend the knee to your affirmative action ideology. In that, and so if that's the case, you don't get the job, you don't get to present at the conference, and therefore you don't get to disseminate your ideas. So it's either a form of compelled speech or it's a form of censorship. And this is being inst instituted you know, nationwide. It's, a, it's for, for, for jobs, for actually graduate admissions, beginning with undergraduate admissions, um, and in my field in social psychology in one of its major conferences. Jessam said that DEI is quote-unquote affirmative action on steroids which I find to be a very astute observation that pretty much sums it all up. We talked at length about affirmative action in episodes 18, 19, and 20, and I have nothing new to add to the subject here. But I think it's a helpful mental shortcut to frame DEI as a souped-up version of affirmative action, and I thank Lee for this mental shortcut. During the Q&A after his talk, Lee Jussum says there is evidence that when a student attends college, there is tremendous pressure from both faculty and fellow students upon him or her to shift to the left in their thinking. I sense this is true, and it causes me great trepidation when I think about whether or not to encourage my now young children to one day go to college. Jussum says this. Within the last 10 years or so, there were a series of papers concluding that usually, though not always, students do shift left when they go to college, but that most of that influence was from their peers rather than from the faculty. 
there's a very recent paper that didn't really distinguish between faculty and peer influence, but found a pretty profound shift to the left and a shift towards moral absolutism. So something is going on um, in universities. I think that's pretty, that, that is socializing students into this sort of consistently more and more left-wing worldviews. Something is going on in universities that is socializing students into a consistently left-wing worldview. One of the next speakers was John Rose, who teaches about civil discourse and political polarization at Duke University. He was saying that he has a hard time getting other professors to join him in engaging in discussions about controversial subjects. Rose said this, I've, I've tried to convince other faculty to teach the class, and I don't get any takers. They look at the syllabus and they say, what are you, crazy? I'm not going to do it. This is the problem. We need, faculty need to know that the senior administrators have their backs, and they don't. So we have a general statement on, on free speech or academic freedom, all, all these things. But we also know that when that conflicts with DEI, there's no assurance that you're, you're safe. And if you don't know, you're going to err on the side of not assigning Glenn Lowry or defending J.K. Rowling, or having that discussion at all. That's the logical thing to do. And the students know that, too. During this discussion, Amy Wax, professor at Penn Law, shared that she has trouble filling her class on conservative political and legal thought. Wax said this. I teach a course in conservative political and legal thought at Penn Law, and what I have found over the years that I've taught it is that, um, you know, the social justice warrior types, the left-leaning students, and even the normies just are reluctant to engage with or learn about conservative ideas. It's hard for me to get students who are left of center, and that's the overwhelming majority of the students, to even want to take a course like that. I mean, part of it might be that I'm radioactive, but even before I became super radioactive, uh, most of the students I got were, you know, the, the fairly few right of center students. So, I, you know, that's, that is a problem. John Rose identifies a problem which is becoming worse that universities are becoming less and less attractive for conservative scholars. John says this. Part of the problem is that the university isn't attractive to conservatives. So even if they could get the job, do you really want to be the only person in your department who thinks like that? Every flyer on campus, every announcement reminds you that you're a bigot. The quality of life is low. So I think if conservatives are going to have a place in the university, they need community. One of the next speakers was Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of health policy at Stanford. It has recently come to light that Jay was one of the people who had been blacklisted and squelched by Twitter at the behest of government officials because his ideas about COVID policy went against the grain of official government thinking. Jay has this to say about academic freedom at Stanford. So we live in an era where uh, in, in a, you have a... a you have a scientific bureaucrat who unironically tells the world that uh, if you question him, you're not simply questioning a man, you're questioning science itself. We live in an era where we have a high clarity that declares from on high what is true and what is not true. Uh, and I wanted to talk, tell you about the pointy end of that, uh, of that, of that, uh, of that, with some experiences that I've had in the last two years at Stanford, two and a half years at Stanford. Um, I, the last, I've been at Stanford for 36 years. And for 34 years, I would have agreed with you about what Stanford is like. But what I've seen is that when, uh, when you take a position that is at odds with the scientific clarity, your life becomes a living hell. 
you face a, a deeply hostile work environment. I'm just going to give you a couple of vignettes, and I don't want to dwell too much on them just because, uh, I mean, they're painful enough. Um, but I, I just want to give you a sense of what, what, that, what that is actually like in a place like Stanford, which prides itself on academic freedom but does not actually have academic freedom. Because academic freedom really only matters when you take controversial positions. Academic freedom really only matters when you take controversial positions. Jay goes on to share stories about how the powers that be attempted to deplatform and silence him. For those of you who don't know Jay's story, basically, Jay was taking the position all throughout the COVID pandemic that COVID was a disease which primarily threatened the old and health compromised, and not the young and healthy, and that a general lockdown, especially of children, was a wrong and damaging policy to follow. I encourage you to watch the full video of Jay's presentation. It is truly eye-opening about America's pandemic response. Jay had this to say about the message being sent to the public when critical voices are silenced. The, the, the thought was that if you platform me, it's a dangerous thing. But you know what's dangerous is to not platform. If you have a legitimate scientific view, a legitimate policy view, to not speak of it, essentially what it does is it... it, 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 uh, it uh, it sends a message that we do not care about the truth. John Echemendi, professor of philosophy and former provost at Stanford University, had this to say about Jay's experience. You know, if you look at, if you look at what Jay has written from the beginning, from the beginning of COVID, I don't think I've, there's anybody who has been more consistently right than Jay Bhattacharya. And yet not a single member, as far as I know, Correct me if I'm wrong. There's not been a single apology for the treatment that Jay received. And that's a failure. That's a terrible failure. So, so I think, you know, the, it is a large part of this is a problem with the leadership of the university and the fact that we are not standing up for uh, true academic freedom, true balance. Ah, yes, the apologies. When will we finally hear the apologies from those who got it all wrong about COVID and how they demonized those like Jay Bhattacharya who got it right. You know, I don't mind when smart people get it completely wrong. Sowell wrote a whole book about this phenomenon called Intellectuals and Society, which just happens to be my all-time favorite Sowell book. If you haven't read it yet, don't let it pass you by. And I don't even care about apologies. They don't mean that much to me. What I would find more meaningful is if the people who got it all wrong would say, you know, I got it all wrong last time, and I'm going to do some deep soul-searching to figure out what is wrong with the way I think about these problems, which can so easily lead me down the wrong path. You know, a little good old-fashioned epistemological humility, as Gad Sad calls it. Most apologies don't mean much, no matter how sincere because if the apologizer doesn't fix the way he thinks, he will make the same cognitive mistakes the next time around. Just the other day, I saw a tweet which perfectly expressed what I am looking for in a meaningful mea culpa. A fellow named Kevin Bass had this to say on Twitter, quote, I was wrong about lockdowns and mandates. I was wrong, and the reason I was wrong was my tribalism, my emotions, and my distorted understanding of human nature and of the virus. 
It doesn't matter much, but I wanted to apologize for being wrong. End quote. Speaking of Gad Sad and epistemological humility, Gad is an evolutionary psychologist at Concordia University in Montreal, and in his presentation, he addressed the cognitive distortions common in academia today. He discusses a phenomenon unique to Canada, which he calls the indigenization of academia. Gad Sad says this. We also have in Canada something that I don't think you quite have in the United States. We have the indigenization of the university. And that could mean many things. It could mean land acknowledgments, but it can be, mean something actually a lot more nefarious. It can argue that the scientific method is not the sole epistemology for adjudicating across hypotheses, but there are other ways of knowing. So there is an indigenous astronomy. No, there isn't. Okay? There is only the scientific method. There isn't a Lebanese Jewish way of doing evolutionary psychology. There is evolutionary psychology. Okay? Uh, some people ask me, how come I get away with uh, being able to say that? I'm not sure. Maybe it's my radiant smile. But the reality is, everybody has to be able to speak with this kind of boldness. And I think that the problem would go away pretty quickly. Gad gives an example of how indigenization can be weaponized by low-performing academics to advance their careers. He says this. This professor argued that she wasn't granted tenure, not because she hadn't published much, but rather because she's indigenous and therefore her culture promotes the oral tradition. So having things like, you know, writing things was considered to be, you know, a form of violence against her oral tradition. And that wasn't laughed out of, you know, the place, rather that it was actually heard. That's the kind of lunacy you face. Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray joined us for a conversation about what Murray calls the War on the West, which is fundamentally a war on Enlightenment values and the pursuit of truth. If our intellectual leaders start to think that there are some values which are more important than reason and truth, then it logically follows that academic freedom must be suppressed. Murray said this about how this destructive force is coming from within. I think Western anti-Westernism is much more dangerous in the long run than all the other types of anti-Westernism. It's much more dangerous than Arab anti-Westernism or Chinese anti-Westernism or anything else, or Russian anti-Westernism. Western anti-Westernism is a truly corrosive one because it has fallen for or pushed this narrative that the, that the West is, is to be seen solely through the lenses of racism, slavery, <laughs> colonialism. And this, of course, as with all bad ideas, they're always onto something. And, um, you know, if you go to a society like America and you say to them, you know, did you know what your forebears did in the 18th and early 19th century? Of course, they're not happy about it. They're not proud of it. Um, but what should their attitude be towards it? And what, is, what has been thrown into the mix in recent years has been, you should see this as your original sin as a mm -hmm. nation. Now, I actually resent this, and this has been taken up on the right and the left in America, the notion of America having original sin. The reason I resent it is because if America has an original sin, what are the original sins of other countries? Now, what's the original sin of Uganda or Nigeria? There must be some, unless there are some Edenic societies and some evil ones. What has actually happened is that it's only the Western countries that have been put through this. So now in Europe, of course, Europe has the original sins, not just of, of racism but of, and of slavery, but of also of colonialism. And maybe a lot of this is particularly messy because we're not that far away from the era of colonialism. We don't know how to weigh up properly what the pros and cons of the whole thing were. We can't even have that conversation uh, to a great extent. Murray points to the literal deplatforming via statue removal of Western historical heroes as a symptom of these anti-enlightenment forces. He says this. 
every historical hero that you and I grew up with, Jordan, has now been pulled down, sometimes quite literally. If you look at America, America is in the process of destroying every single one of its founding fathers. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln, it doesn't matter, Lincoln's statues come down, Lincoln's name is, 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 is defaced. Um, in Britain and in Canada, Winston Churchill's statue keeps on being the focal point of people attacking him for living in the past, for having some Victorian views without any realization that, you know, if you're born in the Victorian era, it's quite likely you're going to have some Victorian views. Um, however, People in the past didn't think precisely what we think about race and colonialism and slavery in 2022. And so, like, to hell with a lot of them, we don't need them. And the place where it's become most dangerous, in my view, and I say this in the book, is with philosophers. Jordan Peterson responds to Murray's take from a psychological point of view. And he talks about how college professors take advantage of their young students being in a so-called messianic stage of development to promote and inculcate various moral crusades, as Sowell might call them. Peterson said this. They offer students in their messianic stage of development. So Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist, pointed out that there was a late stage of cognitive development that he called the messianic, which very few developmental psychologists ever talk about. And it occurs in the latter part of adolescence when adolescents who are making the transition to full individuality are looking for a, I would say, something like a heroic role to take on in relationship to their cultural progression, right, and their enculturation. And so and that it, it's during that messianic phase, for example, when people are best inducted into the military because they're also catalyzing their, their group identity and often on the cultural and musical front as well. So there's, yes. there seems to be neurological reasons as well because there's a radical reorganization of neurological structure in, in later adolescence. And in any case, the universities capitalize on that messianic phase and they offer a very straightforward proposition, which is something like, here's a very simple narrative, which is that everything that great people have ever done in your culture was done as a consequence of their malevolence and their oppression and their power. And they're also very complicated to think through, so that's annoying. And you can just be morally superior to them yes. by claiming yes. that you're right because you know these five things and they're wrong yes. despite their stacks of, of, of learning and depth and deep knowledge. And then not only do the universities promote that view actively and make it, what, what, what would you say, offered as an enticement to instant moral superiority, but they provide their students with a network and a peer group that aggrandizes them, and the faculty do this as well, as a consequence of adopting this stance. When I see the Antifa guys and gals hurling Molotov cocktails at the man, I can't help but think of this messianic phase of development, which lends a patina of moral superiority to every crusade du jour, whether it be BLM, Me Too, COVID, gender ideology, or whatever is coming next, God only knows. Douglas Murray then explains why Enlightenment values have to be weakened in order to make room for activism. He says this. The Enlightenment philosophers and rationalism has to be kicked out of the way if you're going to do what the activists want to do next. Yeah, well, that's a typical Marxist ploy. Yes, to reason is the problem. Reason mm -hmm. is the problem. Truth is believed by these radicals to be part of the problem. It's believed to be a white construct like punctuality, mm -hmm. timeliness, accuracy, and things like that. I, I mean, this bridge over here, since this is all so coming to, into uh, engineering, this bridge over here, we're not going to use traditional white uh, um, uh, capitalist ways to build the bridge. We're going to use other ways of knowing after you driving across that bridge. But here's the thing, of course, we we went on the presumption, those of us who are conservatives, went on the presumption again, it would not get to stem because at some point the bridges have to stay up. And my conclusion after watching this year on year is if the bridges came down, it would be because of structural racism. Jordan Peterson chimes in with a discussion about the psychological phenomenon of staying silent in the face of the promotion of obvious falsehoods. He talks about the feeling of resentment 
as a sign that one should speak up, which I find very interesting and may even have something to do with why I started this podcast. Peterson said this. All of us around here, we have to think very hard about when we're silent, when we're not supposed to be. And you know, you're silent when you're not supposed to be, when what you're not saying is making you resentful. And that's a sign that you're not being true to the spirit that you're attempting to foster if you're a true, well, if you're truly creative, if you're a true avatar of culture, if you're a true academic. It's like, well, when do I have to say something? Well, when, when it would hurt me not to, right? And that's not just careless activism or, or troublemaking. It's, I'd rather, I'd, rather, I'd rather take the risk now and say what I need to say and not remain silent, despite the fact that it may come at some real cost. Another speaker, Ilya Shapiro, the director of constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute, had this to say about silence in the face of lies. I drew on uh, the lesson that Eugene taught me about a decade ago when we were working on a brief invoking Solzhenitsyn's mantra of live not by lies. That has become uh, my mantra. Uh, He wrote, let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph, uh, but not through me. But why do we stay silent in the face of so much insanity? According to Peterson, the fear of being excommunicated from the group is a primal human fear and can serve to keep most of us in line. Peterson says this. Jay, for example, talked about the consequences of being mobbed. And so what happens is the narcissistic and psychopathic Machiavellians, they figure out how to isolate people like predators isolate their prey in a group. And then they mob them. And like I've spoken with hundreds of people now who've been mobbed and excluded. And I haven't met a single person who wasn't shaken to the core by it. And I know that on the clinical front, there's two big categories of fear. eh? There's sort of fear of biological vulnerability and mortality. And so that would be insanity and suffering and death, all of that biological vulnerability. But the second great category of fear is something like exposure and contempt and alienation at the hand of your fellow men. One of the next talks was given by Richard Schwader, professor of cultural anthropology at the University of Chicago. I appreciate the way he laid out how the concept of academic freedom has changed dramatically over the past century. He says this. Let's go back to the 1930s and Robert Maynard Hutchins. He was asked to define academic freedom. Okay? And he said, a university is a community of scholars. It's not a kindergarten. <laughs> okay, and think about what that implies broadly, being a kindergarten and protection and paternalism and so forth and offices that are there to serve that function at the universities. It's not a club. Okay? Think about what that implies for extracurricular comments that might be made by members of the faculty that get you kicked out, like in a private club. Okay? It's not a reform school, okay? It's not trying to be a moral change agent, okay? It's not a political party. It's not an agency of propaganda. Think about public relations extensions and universities and the kinds of things they say. A university is a community of scholars, okay? Now let's go to 1967, fast forward, and we're now at the year that the Calvin Report was written at the University of Chicago. And again, I want to just think about the value classical liberal academy and leadership. This is Edward Levy in 1967 talking to the citizens board of the University of Chicago. And he tells them the following. The university, it's not the role of the university to directly respond to the needs of the broader world of politics and commerce. It's, It's not the role of the university to be popular with the general public. He tells them it's not the true mission of an academic institution to be moral. The mission is intellectual, not moral. He told them that a university does not exist to develop inventions for industry 
or to train or be a pipeline for technicians for roles in society. It's not there to counter the injustices of the world. The central purpose of the university, he explicitly tells them, its main reason for its existence is, quote, to the improving, improving the stock of ordered knowledge and rational judgment. That's what the university's mission is. This is a particular conception. It's a subculture. It's a classical liberal vision of an academy. University presidents in the United States no longer speak that way. Wow. How refreshing would it be to hear a university president talk about academic freedom that way now? Hearing that kind of talk makes me feel nostalgic for the past. But how bad is the problem, really? One of the speakers, Noah Diffenbaugh, professor of earth science at Stanford, made the case that academic freedom at Stanford was rock solid, and he saw no major threats to it, at least not at his institution. I found his presentation a little puzzling, given that we were at a conference which was premised on the belief that academic freedom was under assault all across America. But hey, freedom of speech, right? Let him present his point of view. One of the next speakers, Greg Lukianoff, president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, pushed back against Diffenbaugh's assertions of, move along, folks, nothing to see here. Lukianoff said this, um, I run into this a lot, so I've been at FIRE for 21 years, and I've run into deans um, and professors saying, well, everything's fine where I am, um, so this isn't really happening. Uh, what can FIRE possibly know about it? And I'm like, so the group that sees it ha- what's happening nationally knows less than the professor who's in a department. Um, so it w- was really interesting to see uh, Professor Noah, I don't know what his last name was, um, talk about everything being fine at Stanford when there's been 21 attempts to get professors fired at Stanford since uh, just, just since 2014. We know that only about, and most of those involve a, a back and forth with the Hoover Institution, and to uh, Stanford's credit, only three of them uh, three re- resulted in, in people being fired. But three is pretty. Three is not great. And people don't actually look into what's happening at their own institutions before they say, "Oh, there's nothing happening here." Now, when you take a, a situation like Stanford, when you look at the lack of viewpoint diversity here to begin with, it gets actually higher ratings because of Hoover. But Hoover has very little effect. I didn't even know what the, that tower was in the middle of campus until I graduated from Stanford Law School. Um, like, because they didn't. It was a dirty secret um, uh, uh, back then. So very low viewpoint diversity. See, uh, there are secret hearings. Even our critics agree with, uh, with this. And I really want to stress: 800 attempts to got professors fired since 2014. Um, the numbers for students, of course, are, 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 are way worse. Um, about 60% of them result in some sanction. Um, uh, the, and when we looked at the historical comparison, and I got written up on Media Matters for this, for saying that comparing to McCarthyism, but the numbers for McCarthyism, as best we can tell, are about 100 to 130 professors fired between 1947 and 1957 for, for, for pro sympathies. Um, we see way more than that, and we're not in a national security crisis. So like, the, the, if people are trying to tell you there's nothing wrong in higher education, every measure, whether you ask, ask students, um, they, they say that they're afraid to speak. Um, when you ask professors, they say the same thing. And the numbers, like I said, they're, it's, not just, it's not just a big deal. It's something we're going to be studying in 100 years. Given that there are that many hundreds and only three, and not to say that three is too many. At Stanford. At Stanford. There are, there are schools that are much worse. Uh, but the, the point is they don't, somebody, and it's probably at the administrative level, yeah. stops it, from, right? Adjudicates it from within. Um, well, a lot of times it's actually pressure from us. Or for well. pressure from us. But what I'm saying <laughs> yeah. is in some ways that seems to be that most of the time it's working is what I'm trying to say. Uh, um, most of the time it's not working because 60% of the time the, the, the professors are punished. Oh, I thought you said it was only three. At Stanford. Okay. Tw- there were 21 attempts to get. No, I, I will All say right. that you know some credit to, to Stanford for 21 attempts and only three actual hits. But the overall picture is 60 percent of the uh, of those 800 professors are okay. punished in some way. With 40 tenured professors fired since 2014 for teaching, 
for research, for pedagogy, the thing that tenure was designed to protect. I did, I've done this job for 21 years. Prior to, I'd say, about 2012, I can think of maybe one tenure professor that I saw get fired, um, and that was for academic misconduct. Uh, 40 just since 2014, 2015, for the one thing that tenure is supposed to actually do is nuts. One of the people on the panel with Greg Lukianoff was a dean from the University of Utah named Hollis Robbins. She was asked by Dorian Abbott, a climate scientist from the University of Chicago, about the threat posed to professors by DEI bureaucrats at universities. We've all heard about the hours-long DEI workshops which faculty are required to attend as a form of moral re-education. Robbins had this response, which I found somewhat surprising. One of the main threats to academic freedom from within the institution is the DEI bureaucracies, which are appointed and enabled by the administrators. So thank you, and I will I will say I'm not going to speak for all deans um, coming into into a leadership position. You know, we're there's it's an organization, right? When you belong to the organization, there's going to be rules of the, that organization. I some of those rules like trainings, um, deans have to take the trainings too. I've had to take more trainings in various things than I know. I, I had to take a lot of heat stroke training in case um, somebody had a heat stroke. This was something when I was in California that was mandated by law that anybody who was in any position had to learn what to do when somebody gets heat stroke training. Now that's that's a legislative, sometimes in state schools, there are legislative questions and legislative orders that we have to work within that authorizing environment. What I found startling about her response was that in her mind, being required to take a diversity, equity, and inclusion workshop was akin to being required to take a workshop in how to treat heat stroke. It's just one of those trainings you need, like a lifeguard has to learn CPR. I don't want to be critical of anyone at the conference but I found that way of framing the issue to be very telling. I'll say no more. One of the next speakers was Amy Wax, professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I deeply admire Wax's straightforward style of communicating her fierce opposition to the agenda of what she calls the progressive left. Wax said this about the left's attempt to undermine the American legal system. The goal of the progressive left today, and we've heard about this on the prior panel, is to destroy and demolish our legal system with its safeguards, procedures, and practices. A system that is the envy of the world. Why? That justice system is oppressive and bigoted, a cover for hatred, for racism, for white privilege. Our legal system represents whiteness, and whiteness has to go. It has to be replaced. But replaced with what? Well, with some corrupt, unprincipled, arbitrary, unpredictable, fact-free system driven by identity politics, by preferment, by power, by tribalism, the goal is to take our carefully constructed first world legal system and send it back to third world status. And the only upside I can see of this project, well, it might alleviate our immigration problem. Why would people want to come to us for the same miseries and injustices they have at home? That's the mystery. Wax is not afraid to directly address what she calls the elephant in the room. She has the guts to boldly go where no man has gone before. To boldly go where no man has gone before. The elephant in the room at this conference, the one subject that has not come up, is race. 
The centerpiece of wokeness is that all disparities, all group disparities are due to racism. Racism, racism, racism. If people on the right want to embrace meritocracy and fight wokeness and be colorblind, they have to have an answer to that. They have to face up to the fact that the meritocracy will produce different outcomes by group. And they can't shrink from that. Wax ended her presentation with an exhortation to courage, which I found quite inspiring. Her words really resonated with me, and I have to admit, I got goosebumps hearing what she had to say. Wax said this. I will leave you with a Latin motto, which is the motto of some of my children's very overpriced, fancy and expensive boarding school. (laughs) That Latin motto is non sibi. That means not for ourselves. I hope that we here at this conference are not here for ourselves, but rather to preserve, protect, and defend the system that has been bequeathed to us by those who have come before to the next generation. I know that's why I'm here. People say, why don't you leave? Why don't you quit? Why don't you retire? Why do you tolerate these slings and arrows? And my answer to them is non-sibi. I am here for them. And that requires a certain degree of sacrifice. So if I leave you with one wish, a forlorn hope, I guess, It would be, let's see more tenured professors stand up and be counted by opposing what is happening in the university today. Thank you. Amy Wax is getting at something I feel strongly about, which is that there are two types of people in the world. There are people who have children, and there are people who don't. When you have children, you have a stake in the future, which childless people don't have. It's just different. The moment you have a child, the future isn't what it used to be. Amy is saying that the main reason she goes through all the hassle of standing her ground on these issues is that she wants to leave a sane world to her children, grandchildren, and generations to come. Non-Sibi. One of the next speakers was Neil Ferguson, one of Thomas Sowell's colleagues at the Hoover Institution. Neil is a senior fellow at Hoover in History, And he had this to say about academic freedom, which really reminded me of Sowell. So first of all, let me make it clear that that your framing of the the, the problem must be wrong, because most people become academics precisely in order to escape from the market. Uh, The reason we become academics is so that we have time to do things that are essentially not viable in the marketplace, in my case, write enormously long uh, books and, and think So I became an academic because it was clear that uh, the minute you leave university and enter the marketplace, you no longer have any time to think. And most of us want to be left alone to do our work, which is thinking, reading, producing research. And I wish I was doing that now. I wish I didn't have to come to a conference on academic freedom. I wish you'd just leave me alone to do my effing work. I could listen to Neil talk for hours on end. Everything he says just makes total sense to me. Here's what he had to say about the myth of the swinging pendulum. The belief that there's some kind of pendulum in academic life, like we're in some big grandfather clock, and that this pendulum will somehow of its own accord swing back towards the political center and presumably then swing towards the right because pendulums don't just stop in the middle. Uh, That's a total illusion. It's a complete illusion. The the sustained ideological drift at the universities has been a 50-year project. Uh, You can see that. Stanley Rothman uh, and co-authors had a paper way back that said 39% of the professoriate 
were left, described themselves as left in 1984, 72% did in 1999, and at Harvard it's now like 98%. So this is a sustained shift to the left. Mitchell Langbert's work's already been cited, but if you're in a field like history where the ratio of registered Democrats to Republicans is 17.4 to 1, you are in a domain in which the idea of academic freedom is only in fact available now to the card-carrying liberals and progressives. Conservatives can't have academic freedom because they can't get academic jobs. And to be identified as a conservative, to have, in fact, the name Ferguson associated with you uh, is a kind of black spot, like something out of Robert Louis Stevenson. So graduate students who have the black spot have to seek employment elsewhere. You can't have academic freedom if you're not an academic. Neil believes that the only solution to the problem of dying academic freedom is the creation of new institutions with a different DNA. He most emphatically does not believe that the existing institutions can be reformed from within. Neil says this. The only possibility for increasing academic freedom must be the creation of new institutions. This follows logically from what I'm saying, that are not under the control of the custodians of the new orthodoxy. And that's why I become involved in the foundation of the University of Austin, because there is no other way to do this. The existing institutions will not fix themselves, because why would an institution that is 98% to the left vote to change itself? That's not going to happen. John Cochrane, who opened the conference, gave a later talk in which he made three key points. The first is that the progressive left has made a concerted effort to capture key institutions because convincing voters has proven to be too difficult. Cochrane said this. There is a political slash religious movement going on, uh, a small 8% of the population, which is to take over power, but they can't do it by elections. Uh, so they do it, uh, they do it by capturing the institutions of civil society, by which case in, in that way you can, and they, they desire authoritarian power to tell us what to do. And universities are, they're kind of a key institution because they lead to other ones, but the institutions of the federal government, the uh, philanthropies, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the administrative agencies are a very important thing to capture, the institutions of law and so forth. If you can capture that, you've got the rest. And, and it's a classic technique. Um, it's important in such an endeavor to have a apocalyptic nonsense that you make people repeat over and over again. The Soviets did this, the Maoists did this. And it's important to crack down. Why? I mean, I'm perfectly happy to anyone have critical theory all they want to. Uh, all I want is the right to talk about something else. But we can't be allowed to talk about something else in, in such a movement. John's second point is that the real danger of censorship in the academy is not what we can see. It's all the things we don't get to see because they never happen. He says this. The real danger is, is to an economist, Bastiat, the, the things not seen, um, not, not the things actually seen. The research not done, the people driven out of academia, uh, the knowledge not gained, the knowledge not challenged. Uh, and, and, and suing is, is helps individual faculty, helps the environment, but isn't directly uh, going to help. John mentions Frederick Bastiat, the French economist, and he reminded me of Bastiat's famous essay about the shopkeeper's broken window. If you've never read that essay, you're in for a treat. I'll put a link in the show notes to the full essay. It's one of those metaphors which, once read, you will never forget. John's final point is that he still believes that existing institutions can be reformed from within, but it will take hard work. He says this. 
we can fix our own institutions to some sense. Neil told me a great story which shocked me a while ago. He said, I was at Oxford. We were complaining about, as many of you complain about the quality of students being let in now. He says, I was at Oxford. We read all the undergraduate files. What? A full tenured professor reading undergraduate admissions files? And Neil said, well, we never get dumb students because we only let in students that we think are smart. Well, what? gosh, we could do that too. Uh, so you know, get off our butts. Why have we outsourced admissions to staff? Staff who I know at, at Stanford who consciously say, we are not looking for scholars. We are looking for activists. Oh, great. You're 18 years old. You know all the answers already. And what you really need to do is go out in the streets and join Greta Thunberg and, and, and Forcer. How about you learn something first? Well, we could at least take over and then volunteer to serve on the committee. As Neil said, there's a lot of not wanting to get off our butts. Tyler Cowan, professor of economics at George Mason University, put an interesting spin on the subject of academic freedom by making the bold and counterintuitive claim that academics enjoy more freedom of speech and reach today than ever before, just not strictly within the confines of their institutions. He said this. Leave, or at least redirect your energies. Consider the world today, outside the university, you have more than 100x de facto free speech than you did before the internet. Not 30% more, not 2x more, 100x more. My de facto free speech I never could have had before the internet. So it's there now. You just have to take it. And the relative influence of the internet compared to universities and driving ideas for the next generation, that's been an enormous shift away from the universities. So there's this incredible solution. You can even keep your tenured post if you want. So I would just say do it. I mean, in the universities, as I indicated before, we've lost the battle. Look around this room. The speaker is us. We are old in this room. And after the first session, the line at the bathrooms, the line for the men's bathroom was really long, and no line at the women's bathroom. Even at an NBA game, you won't see that. <laughs> or if I go to an effective altruism conference, the positive energy I feel in the room from the young people is incredible. I don't feel that here. I really don't. I'm not blaming any of you, I'm not blaming Stanford, the organizers, but our cause is losing in the universities. Our cause is winning very dramatically in the world. So live in the world first and foremost. Tyler makes a fantastic point, which is that academics today have many ways they can reach an audience that is much larger and consequential than just the few students they teach in their classes. The existence of this podcast is proof of what he is saying. When I put out a new episode, I reach thousands of people within a few days. Plus, my words and souls reach even more people day after day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's always out there. Were I to teach a class about Thomas Sowell at a college somewhere, perhaps 20 people might sign up each semester. And once the course ended, it would be gone. There's very little leverage in that. The numbers and reach just aren't there. Plus, and think about this. No one vetted me to offer this podcast about Thomas Sowell. I selected myself, and I am free to sink or swim on the quality of my ideas and my presentation. Another great presentation at the conference was given by Steven Pinker, who you will remember from episode 26. 
I love Dr. Pinker's style of presentation. He has a sort of level-headed, rational, and matter-of-fact persona, which just has me nodding in agreement, no matter what the subject. Here's what he had to say about what he calls the sacred beliefs of intellectual elites. Pinker said this. Uh, Here's another candidate for a mythology zone. The sacred beliefs of intellectual elites. Belief in the blank slate, in the permanence of bigotry and misogyny, in the iniquity of the West, the independence of gender identity and uh, biological sex, the ubiquity of abuse and trauma. It's, and I'm sure you could extend the list. It's not clear that these are um, treated as uh, empirical hypotheses so much as things that any decent person has to believe. Uh, indeed, the mythological status of these elite beliefs, which I uh, suggest is a kind of human intuitive default, gets additional fortification by, philosoph- by um, epistemologies like relativism, postmodernism, critical theory, social constructionism, according to which objectivity and truth are mere pretexts to power. Well, that can easily merge with our default intuition that these cosmic moral beliefs are not uh, empirical and they are signs of your moral uh, uh, commitment and purity. So much about the craziness of our present age is encapsulated in Pinker's words when he blithely said, quote, it's not clear that these are treated as empirical hypotheses so much as things that any decent person has to believe, end quote. Pinker then delivers his one-minute plaidoyer for the importance of rationality and free speech, which is so jam-packed with wisdom It's worth listening to multiple times, just so you can fully absorb it. He says this. Norms of rationality should just be part of our conventional wisdom, our our norms of propriety in any kind of uh, intellectual exchange. There should be a widespread awareness of common fallacies, like the availability bias, basing uh, estimates of uh, risk and probability on anecdotes rather than data, the my side bias, arguing ad hominem, and so on. There should be a respect given to basing your beliefs on evidence and changing your mind when the evidence changes. This is uh, also a highly exotic belief. Most people treat uh, beliefs as signs of your, uh, your fortitude, your integrity, that people will actually say that it's important to stick with your beliefs even when the evidence goes against them. that. That's a human tendency we should try to push against. And understanding that because humans are fallible, conjecture and refutation, offering a hypothesis and sub- subjecting it to criticism, to f- attempts to falsify it, are the only routes to knowledge. No one is infallible. No one is omniscient. The only way that our pathetic species can approach the truth is by brooding ideas and uh, determining whether they are um, true or false, with obvious relevance to freedom of speech and inquiry. Namely, when we suppress free speech, we are disabling our species' only mechanism to uh, ascertain the truth. His final claim is particularly important. He says that free speech is our species' only mechanism to ascertain the truth. Not just the best mechanism, but the only mechanism. Worth noting. Pinker ends his presentation by addressing the subject of trust, which I find to be a critical subject in today's world. His discussion takes me on a roller coaster ride of emotions, as he alternately gives me hope, then snatches it away, only to give it back to me again. Here's what he said. One of the reasons we all should be defending academic freedom, not only is it the only route uh, uh, to to truth uh, that exists for us and perhaps any cognitive agent, um, short of being vouchsafed the truth by an angel, uh, the only way to to, uh, achieve truth is to try out ideas and then uh, allow them to be evaluated. But also, 
in order to earn the credibility of the public, um, we've got to give them reason to believe that our newspapers, our government agencies, our universities, above all, our professional societies, uh, really do run by rules that would tend to push them in the direction of truth, which is why the suppression of speech, the punishment of dissidents, is so corrosive. It gives people reason. I think they go overboard, I think. Um, so when I, people say, say to me, well, why you say in, your, in, your, in one of my other books that the, there's a scientific consensus that human activity is warming the planet. But why should I be impressed by the scientific consensus? Everyone knows that if you were to voice a dissenting voice in, in a university, you'd be canceled. So I'll just blow off um, the, uh, the, the consensus. Now, that is an overreaction, because you know, in general, for all of the um, horrors that we've heard about the last couple of days, still, on average, you'd be better off trusting something that came out of a university than a randomly selected uh, Facebook page or tweet. Uh, no, I think, I, I, and I think it's important that we keep things in perspective, that, uh, that you know, there are, um, there are uh, horror stories, there are systematic areas in which there have been an error, but we need the control group. And if the control group is a community where there's no review that anyone can say anything, well, we, we actually know what that control group is. It's Twitter uh, and Facebook. So, but nonetheless, it is, it is, so I'm saying that it's an overreaction. But nonetheless, it remains true that our greatest imperative for preserving academic freedom and the impression of academic freedom is to maintain, uh, is to earn the trust of people in institutions like scientific societies, mainstream press, universities. When I hear Dr. Pinker riffing on this subject, I really have to wonder if our leading institutions have squandered the trust of the public, which they used to enjoy, especially through their embrace of the unempirical myths Pinker talked about earlier. The myth that people are blank slates, the myth about the permanence of bigotry and misogyny, the myth about the immorality of the West, the myth that gender identity and biological sex are unrelated, the myth that abuse and trauma are everywhere you look. Our guiding institutions have all embraced these and other myths, and in so doing, have lost the faith and trust of the people they are meant to guide. A big part of the conference was laying out the many problems within academia and the many threats to academic freedom found within the university. But what are the solutions? In my view, there were seven different possible solutions offered by the conference participants, and I'd like to spend a few minutes presenting them to you. Solution number one. Pursuing legal options and using the courts and government to protect and advance academic freedom. We already heard from Greg Lukianoff, whose foundation deploys an army of pro bono lawyers to defend professors against the suppression of free speech by their universities. Amy Wax laid out a slew of possible government-based solutions which could be implemented. She said this. I'm going to say something very partisan here. I think that there is potential for the government to take action. I know conservatives and libertarians are reluctant to push that, and I understand that perfectly. Uh, but there is an effort on to get legislators interested in trying to reform higher education. And of course, the only legislators who are interested in doing anything like that are Republicans. Democrats are a total loss. The Democrats are not your friend here. They are not going to do anything to undermine wokeism or progressivism or the growth of DIE bureaucracies in the university. They are 100% behind those trends. So what can legislators do, Republican legislators, 
Well, there's lots, but I think the real model here is Title VI. Title VI says that universities, private, public, or otherwise, that want to receive federal funds must abide by certain rules. They can't discriminate on the basis of race, sex, et cetera, et cetera. One could leverage Title VI by imposing additional requirements, including every university taking federal funds must adopt First Amendment principles. Every university taking federal funds must write into its faculty handbook and its rules, the kind of rules that Don Hasness is talking about, that all complaints based on speech rather than action shall be immediately dismissed. They could uh, empower private individuals to sue, uh, require the appointment of university officials who, uh, of course, we don't like bureaucracy, but I think this one bureaucrat we could tolerate to oversee speech violations uh, and complain to the Justice Department and enforce these rules. So I could go on and on. Uh, there are a lot of measures here, and you know, uh, Professor Abbott also has alluded to some of those that could be adopted if there was the power and the inclination to do that. Solution number two. Creating alternative institutions dedicated to open inquiry and academic freedom. We've already heard Neil Ferguson make the case for the University of Austin, which has been explicitly designed to be one of these leading institutions. Lee Jussum laid out his case for islands of academic freedom when he said this. And that is, if you accept that most of academia is mostly lost, or that many of our colleagues are cowed into silence, but should the opportunity arise, might be more willing to stand up. One avenue, um, short of convincing legislatures to pass new laws, is to form our own new organizations and institutions within academia, within our universities, as islands of academic freedom and scientific integrity. As you have seen, some people have done. You have the MIT Academic Freedom Alliance. You have the recent dramatic upscaling in FIRES activities. You have the, the, the uh, Academic Freedom Alliance out of Princeton. Um, and I'm one of the founders of a new organization, the Society for Open Inquiry in the Behavioral Sciences, um, that is intended to preserve much of what John Haidt described in his opening talk. Solution number three, educating the public at large about these issues and convincing more and more parents to pull their children from mainstream institutions. John Ellis, a former professor of German literature at the University of California, laid out his case for this here. Racial quotas have always been banned. They use them anyway. Use of the university for political purposes has always been banned. They do it anyway. The radicals know they're safe because they control all the campus enforcement mechanisms, both faculty committees and administrations. This corrupted version of higher education is doing immense damage to our society. Our children are not getting a college education. The colleges are spreading a destructive ideology and the professions are being corrupted one after another. The public pays for this through taxation, tuition payments, and donations. While the flow of that money continues, nothing will change. It now supports people who are hired to do one job, but actually do a completely different one of their own choosing. 
Reform will come only when public attitudes catch up with the reality of what's going on. And that's where the efforts of reformers ought to be directed. Most parents still think they're sending their children to college, not to boot camp for radical activists. They'll only stop doing this when they come to understand the difference. If and when the flow of public money dwindles, these irretrievably corrupted institutions would begin to fail for want of enrollment. At that point, some empty campus buildings would be available for building serious universities from scratch, rather like the new University of Austin. Competition from places like that might begin to put some alien infested campus out of business. Now, some good news is that the public is already beginning to vote with its feet. For every five undergraduates who enrolled in the fall of 2011, there were only four enrolled 10 years later in 2021. That's a drop of about 3.6 million out of some 20 million. Adjusting those numbers either for an aging population or for COVID makes as yet very little difference. So millions of parents and students have already figured out that college is no longer worth the cost in lost years and money. Let's hope that more do so soon. Solution number four. Training students in the habits of open inquiry. This is a more bottom-up approach. John Rose laid out his case for this here. In my experience teaching at Duke over the last four years, I've discovered that the vast majority of students actually want more open inquiry in the classroom. Most of my students self-censor, I know this because I pull them anonymously, it's about two-thirds consistently. Obviously that's all of the conservatives, but many liberals. And they don't like the fact that they feel the need to self-censor. They resent it, and that's important. I also know that they want greater viewpoint diversity in-class discussions, guest speakers, and syllabi. I teach a lot of students, I taught 200 last year, and I meet with nearly all of them over coffee. So I have a sense of what's going on in these students' minds. All these observations have led me to believe that if you want to create a culture of free speech on campus, it needs to start with the students in the classroom, not with faculty or administrators. If there is a movement afoot, that's where the energy is. Top-down changes like adopting the Chicago Principles or the Calvin Report mentioned are helpful. I'm, I'm in favor of them. Um, but it's the bottom-up changes brewing in student culture that are even more important. Students aren't the problem, in my view. They're the solution. To do my part to help, I teach classes at Duke on political polarization and conservatism that require students to discuss hot-button topics in a civil manner. We cover everything. I mean everything. Critical race theory, pronouns, transgender athletes, Israel, Palestine, you name it. I ask students in polls, what do you self-censor on? Those are the things we talk about. And the classes have been a real success. They work. And it's not because I'm a special teacher. It's because there's an unmet, enormous student demand for classes like these, for atmospheres like these. Solution number five. Restructuring the university to embed a sort of judicial branch within the administration whose main purpose is to adjudicate questions relating to freedom of speech and thought. Tyler Cohen and Neil Ferguson discuss this here. I'm struck by the NBA. Kyrie Irving endorses this anti-Semitic film. The NBA suspends him, right? It's not because of the government or title whatever or the Wokies. It's a purely commercial decision. Now, you're going to have deans at Austin 
and they're going to face cases of instructors or staff doing and saying bad things. Now, I don't mind if you just copy the NBA. That's up to all of you. But how is it you with your deans are going to do a better job than the NBA is doing with Kyrie Irving? And NBA probably did the right thing, in my opinion. Well, it's, yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the problem is our governance system at, at universities, certainly private universities, almost certainly puts us in exactly the same position where, for reputational reasons, uh, a professor who said the same things would find himself in the same situation. I wonder if uh, there's a fundamental design flaw in the way that we have structured universities so that decisions of that sort end up being made by uh, committees of academics, usually under pressure from promoted academics who've become presidents or, or deans. It's interesting to me, and this is a point that I'm thinking a lot about in the case of the University of Austin, that, that universities typically have a, an executive branch uh, they have a legislative branch. The executive branch is the president and the bureaucracy, and the legislative branch is the tenured faculty. But there isn't actually ever a judicial branch. Uh, now, the United States has been battling with the, the, the problem of, of free speech, the, what is hate speech and what is not, for more than a century. Uh, we actually have a pretty good body of law on these issues. And it seems to me that universities would be better served if they had their own judicial branch where the university had clear, uh, a clear charter, a clear body of, of law, and that those kind of decisions were not taken by colleagues who just happened to be serving as deans. So I think it's a structural problem that any university is going to be confronted by. And if we want to avoid simply being uh, the NBA, I think we have to, to learn from the experience of the founding fathers. They created a judicial branch for a reason, and free speech thrived in the United States for a reason, in a way that it did not thrive in Europe and elsewhere. Solution number six. Twitter, podcasts, YouTube, and all the other ways we can express ourselves freely using the internet. Tyler Cowen made this case when he cajoled his fellow academicians to leave their ivory towers and start speaking up in more venues. I already played that clip. It's what I'm doing with this podcast. It's what Jordan Peterson, Gad Saad, Jay Bhattacharya, Steven Pinker, and many, many others are already doing and have amassed huge audiences for their ideas. What is the cost of freedom? I can tell you the exact number. It's $8 per month. Many of you will know what I'm referring to, but if you don't, the answer will be in the show notes. Solution number seven. Mustering personal courage and fighting the good fight. This might sound cliched, but it's a crucial part of the solution. We already heard Jordan Peterson talk about how important it is to speak up when being silent will just lead to a festering resentment. We heard Gad Saad say that if only each of us would speak up with boldness, the problem would go away quickly. Here's Amy Wax laying out her case for being disagreeable for being contrarian, for being willing to question everything, for not being conflict-avoidant, for having a high tolerance for pain and insult, and a willingness to make new friends. Amy said this. The advice I would give, well, first of all, I'm blessed or cursed 
with a very disagreeable personality. You know, there are five personality measures. I won't give you a little lecture about personality psychology, but one of them is agreeableness. Women are known for their agreeableness. I have been rated by my family as getting a zero on agreeableness. Um, and that really helps. It, it helps that you have this contrarian nature. You question everything. You don't mind conflict. Uh, Josh says he's conflict averse. I'm not really conflict averse. I don't know whether that's nature or nurture. Uh, you have to have a high tolerance for pain. And you have to expect pain. Uh, that you, know, you will be attacked. Uh, you will be labeled, you will be slurred. The media is not your friend. The media is catastrophically dishonest. The mainstream media, I've learned that the hard way. Uh, it's really tragic and scary, frankly. Um, I, I don't approve of talking to the media because I think that you will always lose. Um, the other thing is you, you get shunned, you get ostracized, you get ghosted. Uh, you lose your friends, absolutely, um, by, by the dozens. But you know, you make new friends. People come out of the woodwork, really wonderful people. I call them the adorable deplorables. Uh, all across the country, people contact you, they email you, they send you letters, they send you invitations to their dude ranch or whatever. Um, and I have made new friends, so... So those are the seven possible solutions which were offered at the conference that I could discern. But which one is the best? In my humble opinion, we're going to need all seven solutions to make this work. There is rarely just one solution to a complex problem. And this problem is so big and so complicated that we're going to have to attack it from every possible angle. You know the riddle about the 800-pound gorilla? Where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? Answer, anywhere it wants to. An 800-pound gorilla is a metaphor for a person or organization so powerful that it can act without regard to the rights of others or the law. The so-called captured institutions of the West is our generation's 800-pound gorilla. It's our King Kong. And I'm happy to say I met quite a few Godzillas at the conference in November. At the beginning of this episode, I said that I have come to realize that a very important theme in almost all of Sowell's writings is that of individual freedom. When it comes to economics, Sowell always argued for the freedom of individuals and companies to set their own wages and prices free from government interference. When it comes to politics, Sowell argues for the right of individuals and families to make their own decisions and not be dominated by the clever-sounding schemes of do-gooders in Washington who think they know better and who pay no price for being wrong. When it comes to education, Sowell argues for the right of charter schools to break free of the tyranny of public schools and experiment with different ways of achieving academic excellence. When it comes to race and culture, Sowell argues for the right and freedom of people of all races and cultures to associate with whom they want and to either sink or swim according to their own choices and proven abilities. In July 2016, Sowell wrote an essay to commemorate the 4th of July 
and what it means to him. I'd like to end this episode by reading that essay, and I hope it inspires you as much as it inspires me. Sowell wrote this. There was a time when the 4th of July meant something more than a three-day weekend. Speeches, writings, and commemorative ceremonies reminded us of the origins and greatness of America. No matter where in the world our ancestors came from, we today are almost invariably better off because they came to America. Independence Day signified much more than one country announcing its independence from another on July 4, 1776. It represented a new form of government, freer and more accountable to its own people than the monarchies common around the world for centuries. What happened in America did not stay in America. The example of freedom inspired other peoples in other lands. As a famous poem put it, it was America's embattled farmers fighting for their own freedom and independence who fired the shot heard round the world. There was no question then that the United States was exceptional, however much the smug elites of today, including our president, try to dismiss the idea. Because self-government on such a large scale was a unique experiment, the founders of the American Republic were very much aware that it had its dangers. Thomas Jefferson warned that eternal vigilance was the price of liberty. Even generations later, Abraham Lincoln expressed his fervent hope that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. The survival of freedom was not something he took for granted. Today, too many Americans take freedom for granted as just another entitlement, something that does not require them to take any personal responsibility. It is painful to watch people on the streets or on college campuses being interviewed by TV reporters who ask them elementary questions about the people and institutions that run the country and see how uninformed they are, and how unconcerned about their own gross ignorance. People like that are the natural prey of political demagogues, of which there has never been a shortage. We see the consequences in ever-expanding arbitrary powers of government. Just last week, a U.S. attorney threatened prosecution of anyone who made inflammatory statements about Muslim boys accused of raping a five-year-old girl. Surely that Justice Department official knew that the courts were not likely to violate people's right to free speech. But the real threat was to drag people through expensive and time-consuming legal processes that could disrupt their lives completely. Such high-handed use of government powers has become increasingly common during the Obama administration but an apathetic and uninformed public voted him a second term. That is not the eternal vigilance required to preserve freedom. It is the widespread apathy and gullibility which accepts the coming of tyranny on the installment plan. Earlier generations of Americans fought and died to preserve freedom. Today's generation cannot spare time from their selfies and Twitters to think about such things. Neither the past nor the future seems to weigh on their minds. 
A generation that owes so much to the past acts as if they owe nothing to anybody. Their idea of freedom is exemption from laws or obligations. What many conceive of as freedom today is much more like anarchy. Who are the police to tell them what they cannot do? But anarchy does not mean freedom. It means that people become the slaves of ruffians. What was said in 19th century Britain remains painfully true in too many crime-ridden neighborhoods in 21st century America. The orgy of anti-police rhetoric in the wake of riots in Ferguson, Missouri, and in Baltimore has already been followed by a sudden surge in violence, including murders, as police pull back or get pulled back. Innocent people have paid with their lives for such self-indulgences by demagogues and the media. Freedom is not free. It requires, at a minimum, maturity and a sense of the realities of life. No society of human beings has ever been perfect. But we need only think of whatever person we love most and ask, is that person perfect? Is a country that is not perfect nevertheless deserving of our respect, our gratitude, or our love? The 4th of July is a good day to ponder that question. Let me close this episode with another great version of our Star-Spangled Banner sung at the 2016 Super Bowl. I'll put a link in the show notes to the YouTube video so you can watch it yourself. There's a gigantic American flag on the field. The crowd is standing, and so are the players. Hands on hearts. Football, for me, always symbolized the strength of America. It's the sport which most closely parallels the military mindset. It's a true battle of intelligence, skill, and pure brute force. At the end, when those F-16s flew over the stadium in perfect formation as Lady Gaga sings, and the home of the brave, this is the perfect symbol not only of our freedom, but also of our willingness to defend it. Here's Lady Gaga, all five foot two inches of her. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly
I'm Alan Woolen. Thanks for listening.